Book 1 Part 1 Of History of the Kings of Britain This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth Translated by Aaron Thompson and J. A. Giles Book 1, Chapter 1 The Epistle Dedicatory to Robert, Earl of Gloucester Whilst occupied on many and various studies, I happened to light upon the history of the kings of Britain, and wondered that in the account which Gildas and Bede, in their elegant treatises, had given of them, I found nothing said of those kings who had lived here before the incarnation of Christ, nor of Arthur, and many others who succeeded after the incarnation, though their actions both deserved immortal fame, and were also celebrated by many people in a pleasant manner and by heart as if they had been written. Whilst I was intent upon these, and such like thoughts, Walter, Archdeacon of Oxford, a man of great eloquence, and learned in foreign histories, offered me a very ancient book in the British tongue, which, in a continued regular story and elegant style, related the actions of them all, from Brutus, the first king of the Britons, down to Cadwallader, the son of Cadwallo. At his request, therefore, though I had not made fine language my study, by collecting florid expressions from other authors, yet contented with my own homely style, I undertook the translation of that book into Latin. For if I had swelled the pages with rhetorical flourishes, I must have tired my readers by employing their attention more upon my words than upon the history. To you, therefore, Robert, Earl of Gloucester, this work humbly sues for the favour of being so corrected by your advice, that it may not be thought to be the poor offspring of Geoffrey of Monmouth, but when polished by your refined wit and judgment, the production of him who had Henry, the glorious King of England, for his father, and whom we see an accomplished scholar and philosopher, as well as a brave soldier and expert commander, so that Britain with joy acknowledges that in you she possesses another Henry. Chapter 2 The First Inhabitants of Britain Britain, the best of islands, is situated in the Western Ocean, between France and Ireland, being 800 miles long and 200 broad. It produces everything that is useful to man, with a plenty that never fails. It abounds with all kinds of metals, and has plains of large extent, and hills fit for the finest tillage, the richness of whose soil affords variety of fruits in their proper seasons. It has also forests, well stored with all kinds of wild beasts. In its lawns, cattle find good change of pasture and bees' variety of flowers for honey. Under its lofty mountains lie green meadows, pleasantly situated, 
in which the gentle murmurs of crystal springs, gliding along clear channels, give those that pass an agreeable invitation to lie down on their backs and slumber. It is likewise well watered with lakes and rivers, abounding with fish. And besides the narrow sea, which is on the southern coast towards France, there are three noble rivers, stretching out like three arms, namely the Thames, the Severn, and the Humber, by which foreign commodities from all countries are brought into it. It was formerly adorned with eight-and-twenty cities, of which some are in ruins and desolate, others are still standing, beautified with lofty church towers, wherein religious worship is performed according to the Christian institution. It is lastly inhabited by five different nations, the Britons, Romans, Saxons, Picts and Scots, whereof the Britons before the rest did formerly possess the whole island from sea to sea, till divine vengeance punishing them for their pride made them give way to the Picts and Saxons. But in what manner, and from whence, they first arrived here, remains now to be related in what follows. Chapter 3 Brutus, being banished after the killing of his parents, goes into Greece. After the Trojan War, Aeneas, flying with Ascanius from the destruction of their city, sailed to Italy. There he was honourably received by King Latinus, which raised against him the envy of Turnus, king of the Rutli, who thereupon made war against him. Upon then engaging in battle, Aeneas got the victory, and having killed Turnus, obtained the kingdom of Italy, and with it Lavinia, the daughter of Latinus. After his death, Ascanius, succeeding in the kingdom, built Alba upon the Tiber, and begat a son named Silvius, who in pursuit of a private amour took to wife a niece of Lavinia. The damsel soon after conceived, and the father of Scanius, coming to the knowledge of it, commanded his magicians to consult of what sex the child should be. When they had satisfied themselves in the matter, they told him she would give birth to a boy who would kill his father and mother, and after travelling over many countries in banishment, would at last arrive at the highest pitch of glory. Nor were they mistaken in their prediction, for at the proper time the woman brought forth a son, and died of his birth. But the child was delivered to a nurse, and called Brutus. At length, after fifteen years were expired, the youth accompanied his father in hunting, and killed him undesignedly by the shot of an arrow. For as the servants were driving up the deer towards him, Brutus, in shooting at them, smote his father under the breast. Upon his death he was expelled from Italy, his kinsmen being enraged him for so heinous a deed. Thus banished, he went into Greece, 
where he found the posterity of Heladus, son of Priamus, kept in slavery by Pandrasus, the king of Greeks. For after the destruction of Troy, Pyrrhus, the son of Achilles, had brought hither in chains Helenus and many others. And to revenge upon them, the death of his father, had given command that they should be held in captivity. Brutus, finding they were by descent his old countrymen, took up his abode among them, and began to distinguish himself by his conduct and bravery in war, so as to gain the affection of kings and commanders, and above all the young men of the country. For he was esteemed a person of great capacity, both in council and war, and signalised his generosity to his soldiers, by bestowing among them all the money and spoil he got. His fame, therefore, spreading over all countries, the Trojans from all parts began to flock to him, desiring under his command to be freed from the subjection to the Greeks, which they assured him might easily be done, considering how much their number was now increased in the country, being seven thousand strong, besides women and children. There was likewise then in Greece a noble youth named Assaracus, a favourer of their cause. For he was descended on his mother's side from the Trojans, and placed great confidence in them, that he might be able, by their assistance, to oppose the designs of the Greeks. For his brother had a quarrel with him, for attempting to deprive him of three castles which his father had given him at his death, on account of his being the only son of a concubine. But as the brother was a Greek, both by his father's and mother's side, he had prevailed with the king and the rest of the Greeks to espouse his cause. Brutus, having taken a view of the number of his men, and seen how Azarachus's castles lay open to him, complied with their request. Chapter 4 Brutus's Letter to Pandrasus Being, therefore, chosen their commander, he assembled the Trojans from all parts, and fortified the towns belonging to Assaracus. But he himself, with Assaracus and the whole body of men and women that adhered to him, retired to the woods and hills, and then sent a letter to the king in these words. Brutus, general of the remainder of the Trojans, to Pandrasus, king of the Greeks, sends greeting. As it was beneath the dignity of a nation descended from the illustrious race of Dardanus, to be treated in your kingdom otherwise than the nobility of their birth required, they have betaken themselves to the protection of the woods. For they have preferred living after the manner of wild beasts upon flesh and herbs with the enjoyment of liberty to continuing longer in the greatest luxury under the yoke of slavery. If this gives your majesty any offence, impute it not to them, but pardon it, since it is the common sentiment of every captive to be desirous of regaining his former dignity. Let pity, therefore, move you to bestow on them freely their lost liberty, and permit them to inhabit the thickets of the woods 
to which they have retired to avoid slavery. But if you deny them this favour, then by your permission and assistance, let them depart into some foreign country. Chapter 5. Brutus, falling upon the forces of Pandrasus by surprise, routs them and takes Antigonus, the brother of Pandrasus, with Anacletus, prisoner. Pandrasus, perceiving the purport of the letter, was beyond measure surprised at the boldness of such a message from those whom he had kept in slavery. And having called a council of his nobles, he determined to raise an army in order to pursue them. But while he was upon his march to the deserts where he thought they were, and to the town of Sparatinum, Brutus made a sally with three thousand men, and fell upon him unawares. For having intelligence of his coming, he had gone into the town the night before, with a design to break forth upon them unexpectedly, while unarmed, and marching without order. The sally being made, the Trojans briskly attacked them, and endeavoured to make a great slaughter. The Greeks, astonished, immediately give way on all sides, and with the king at their head, hasten to pass the river Acalon, which runs near the place, but in passing are in great danger from the rapidity of the stream. Brutus galls them in their flight, and kills some of them in the stream, and some upon the banks, and running to and fro, rejoices to see them in both places exposed to ruin. But Antigonus, the brother of Pandrasus, grieved at this sight, rallied his scattered troops, and made a quick return upon the furious Trojans, for he rather chose to die making a brave resistance than to be drowned in a muddy pool in a shameful flight. Thus attended with a close body of men, he encouraged them to stand their ground, and employed his whole force against the enemy with great vigour, but to little or no purpose. For the Trojans had arms, but the others none and from this advantage they were more eager in the pursuit, and made a miserable slaughter. Nor did they give over the assault till they had made nearer total destruction, and taken Antigonus and Anacletus, his companion, prisoners. Chapter 6 The Town of Sparatinum Besieged by Pandrasus Brutus, after the victory, reinforced the town with six hundred men, and then retired to the woods, where the Trojan people were expecting his protection. In the meantime Pandrasus, grieving at his own flight and his brother's captivity, endeavoured that night to reassemble his broken forces. And the next morning went with a body of his people, which he had got together, to besiege the town into which he supposed Brutus had put himself with Antigonus and the rest of the prisoners that he had taken. As soon as he was arrived at the walls, and had viewed the situation of the castle, he divided his army into several bodies, and placed them round in different stations, 
one party was charged not to suffer any of the besieged to go out, another to turn the courses of the rivers, a third to beat down the walls with battering rams and other engines. In obedience to these commands, they laboured with their utmost force to distress the besieged. A night coming on made choice of their bravest men to defend their camp and tents from the incursions of the enemy, while the rest, who were fatigued with labour, refreshed themselves with sleep. Chapter 7 The Besieged Ask Assistance of Brutus But the besieged, standing on top of the walls, were no less rigorous to repeal the force of the enemy's engines, and assault them with their own, and cast forth darts and firebrands with a unanimous resolution to make a valiant defence. And when a breach was made through the wall, they compelled the enemy to retire, by throwing upon them fire and scalding water. But being distressed through scarcity of provision and daily labour, they sent an urgent message to Brutus to hasten to their assistance, for they were afraid they might be so weakened as to be obliged to quit the town. Brutus, though desirous of relieving them, was under great perplexity as he had not enough men to stand a pitched battle, and therefore made use of a stratagem, by which he proposed to enter the enemy's camp by night, and having deceived their watch, to kill them in their sleep. But because he knew this was impracticable without the concurrence and assistance of some Greeks, he called to him Anacletus, the companion of Antigonus, and with a drawn sword in his hand, spake to him after this manner. Noble youth, your own and Antigonus's life is now at an end, unless you will faithfully perform what I command you. This night I design to invade the camp of the Greeks, and fall upon them unawares. But I am afraid of being hindered in the attempt, if the watch should discover the stratagem. Since it will be necessary, therefore, to have them killed first, I desire to make use of you to deceive them, that I may have the earlier access to the rest. Do you therefore manage this affair cunningly? At the second hour of the night, go to the watch, and with fair speeches tell them that you have brought away Antigonus from prison, and that he has come to the bottom of the woods where he lies hid among the shrubs, and cannot get any further, by reason of the fetters with which you will pretend that he is bound. Then you will conduct them, as if it were to deliver him, to the end of the wood, where I will attend with a band of men ready to kill them. Chapter 8 Anacletus, in fear of death, betrays the army of the Greeks. Anacletus, seeing the sword threatening him with immediate death while those words were being pronounced, was so terrified as to promise upon oath that on condition he and Antigonus should have longer life granted them, he would execute his command. Accordingly, the agreement being confirmed, 
at the second hour of the night he directs his way towards the Grecian camp. And when he was come near it, the watch, who were then narrowly examining all the places where anyone could hide, ran out from all parts to meet him, and demanded the occasion of his coming, and whether it was not to betray the army. He, with a show of great joy, made the following answer, I come not to betray my country, but having made my escape from the prison of the Trojans, I fly hither to desire you would go with me to Antigonus, whom I have delivered from Brutus's chains. For being not sighed to come with me for the weight of his fetters, I have a little while ago caused him to lie hid among the shrubs at the end of the wood, till I could meet with someone whom I might conduct to his assistance. While they were in suspense about the truth of his story, there came one who knew him, and after he had saluted him, told them who he was, so that now, without any hesitation, they quickly called their absent companions, and followed him to the wood where he had told them Antigonus lay hid. But at length, as they were going among the shrubs, Brutus, with his armed bands, springs forth and falls upon them while under the greatest astonishment with the most cruel slaughter. From thence he marches directly to the siege and divides his men into three bands, assigning to each of them a different part of the camp and telling them to advance discreetly and without noise. And, when entered, not to kill anybody till he, with his company, should be possessed of the king's tent, and should cause the trumpet to sound for a signal. Chapter 9 The Taking of Pandrasus When he had given them these instructions, they forthwith softly entered the camp in silence, and taking their appointed stations, awaited the promised signal, which Brutus delayed not to give as soon as he had got before the tent of Pandrasus. To assault which was the thing he most desired. At hearing the signal, they forthwith drew their swords, enter in among the men in their sleep, make quick destruction of them, and allowing no quarter in this manner, traverse the whole camp. The rest, awakened at the groans of the dying, and seeing their assailants were like sheep seized with a sudden fear, for they despaired of life, since they had neither time to take arms nor to escape by flight. They run up and down without arms among the armed, whithersoever the fury of the assault harries them, but are on all sides cut down by the enemy rushing in. Some that might have escaped were in the eagerness of flight dashed against rocks, trees, or shrubs, and increased the misery of their death. Others that had only a shield, or some such covering for their defence, in venturing among the same rocks to avoid death, fell down in the hurry and darkness of the night, and broke either legs or arms. Others that escaped both these disasters, but did not know whither to fly, were drowned in the adjacent rivers, and scarcely one got away 
without some unhappy accident befalling him. Besides, the garrison in the town, upon notice of the coming of their fellow-soldiers, sallied forth and redoubled the slaughter. End of Book One, Part One